Welcome, welcome, welcome to Easter at New Hope in 2023 on this Resurrection Sunday. God bless you guys. We're so glad to be together today. And listen, whether this is your first time here or maybe your first time in a while or maybe uh, you're a regular here, thank you for joining us today. It is such an honor to be able to celebrate our risen Savior together. This is a great day. This is easily one of my favorite Sundays of the year, probably my favorite Sunday of the year. We, we spend a lot of time and energy and resources going into this Sunday because it means that much to us. There's nothing more important uh, to us than this Sunday. And it is, the reason we do it is for one reason and one reason alone. It is not about New Hope. It is not about the pastors here or the staff. It is not about the coffee. It's not about all the beautiful clothing that you guys are wearing today, which by the way, you look great, but it's not about those things. It is about celebrating our risen Savior. He lives, there's no doubt about it, and we can rejoice in celebrating that, and we do it every Sunday, but today is just extra special. And uh, thank you for coming out on this Easter Sunday. I know lots of people are out of town because of spring break, but we're so glad you're here today, and it's a wonderful day to come into the house of the Lord. And I just wanna start our time together today with, uh, with a word of prayer. I just ask you to pray with me as we just invite the presence of God here in this place today. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are today. We thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but you came out of it. And that's what we celebrate today, Lord. Thank you that we can say with confidence that he lives. And Lord, we are here today for you. And we pray that you would be glorified in our midst today, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to see you and to know you in a greater way today. Do your work, glorify yourself in our midst today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, amen, praise God. You know, this is the Super Bowl for church. This is, a, this is a big Sunday for us. In fact, Bryant, our tech guy this morning, he said, yeah, it's the Super Bowl and we already know who won. <laughs> praise God. And uh, we're just so excited to come together and, uh, and be together today and to celebrate this greatest event in history. But it's not just the greatest event, it's also the most important event. The resurrection of Jesus is everything in the Christian faith. If you're here today and you would call yourself a Christian, there's nothing more important than the resurrection. Everything in our faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought his death was the biggest thing. You know, I thought his death was what actually brought forgiveness for sins. And if you think that, you would be right. But there's still some very, very important things that the resurrection after the death confirms and proves for us. Let me give you a couple just very, very quickly. For one, the fact that he was resurrected proved that the sacrifice, his death, was accepted by the Father. The fact that he resurrected Jesus, because you know Jesus didn't resurrect himself, the Father is the one that resurrected him. The fact that he did that proved that his sacrifice was sufficient, that it was enough. You guys know that not every sacrifice you make towards God is accepted by God. He rejects some sacrifices. If we, if we come with ulterior motives or we come with uh, an impure heart when we sacrifice, he doesn't always accept those sacrifices. You see it in the Bible, you see it in Cain. He rejected Cain's sacrifice. He rejected King Saul's sacrifice. He doesn't always accept them. And it's no different for Jesus. He had to, we had to know that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And the Bible shows us that the fact that he resurrected Jesus shows that it was acceptable. So the payment he made for our sins the forgiveness for our sins on the cross was accepted by God, which is everything. It shows us that it wasn't just his death, it wasn't just him doing something for mankind, but it actually was accepted by God, and he proved it by resurrecting him. 
and, the, and a beautiful thing for us in that is that if he resurrected Jesus in that, it also shows us that he's gonna resurrect us too. He showed us that he is a God of resurrection. Because the reality is, as much as the forgiveness of sins that happened with the cross is great, we don't really need forgiveness of sins if it's just for this life. Amen? I mean, if I'm just needing forgiveness so I can get through this life, and if when I die, that's the end, then what's the big deal? Why do I need forgiveness? I can get through this life without forgiveness for my sins. The forgiveness is for us for this life, but it proves to us that there is more to this life than this life. The Bible shows us that if God resurrected Jesus, he's also going to resurrect us. He's gonna take us with him one day. In fact, beautiful verse in Romans 6, 5 from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. He said, if we have been united with him, Jesus, in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So the fact that Jesus was resurrected shows us that we will also be resurrected, that there is more to this life. We just sang the song, Death Was Arrested. What a beautiful, beautiful anthem that we sang. But you know, that song doesn't mean that there's no more death in this life. We're all going to die. If the Lord tarries, there's gonna come a day where all of us will end this life. But when he said, when we're singing Death Was Arrested and we're talking about Jesus defeating death, it's the fact that he made, not that death went away in the natural body, but it made the natural death not the last chapter. That it's actually just the beginning. It's the transition from this life into the next life. And his resurrection is what proves that that is what can happen for you and for me, for those of us that trust in Jesus and live our life for him and, and, and receive his forgiveness for our sins and then give him our life. We're going to be resurrected because he is resurrected. And I know many of you have probably been in church a lot of times and you know about the resurrection, but you don't really understand what that means for you. And let me tell you today, the resurrection of Jesus means everything to us. It's everything. There's nothing more important in our faith than the resurrection. In fact, the Bible is crystal clear in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. He says that if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. Some versions say useless. The, the word there actually means it's without force. It has nothing behind it. It doesn't mean anything. In fact, he goes on to say that if we have hope in Jesus just for this life, that we are to be pitied more than anybody else. He says, so basically, if you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, and it's just for this life, and there's no resurrection, that people should feel more sorry for you church folk than anybody else. Because you're living a faith that's worthless. You're living a faith that doesn't mean anything, and you're gonna die, and it's all gonna be over anyway. That's how important it is that Jesus was resurrected and that we walk in this resurrection. Without his resurrection, we can still have faith. It can look good. We can feel good about ourselves. We can study our Bibles. We can do all these things, but our faith is not going anywhere if he's not resurrected. I liken it to buying a car. Let's say you go out this week and you decide you're gonna buy a brand stinking new car fresh off the assembly line as a 2024. I don't even know if those are out yet, but let's say they are. And they deliver it to your house and they put it in your driveway and it's shiny and new and the tires are armored and everything looks great and you get inside, it's got the most, one of the most intoxicating scents in all the world, the new car smell. And you're so excited you can hardly stand it. People are driving by and they're turning their head and thinking, whoa, that's nice, that's beautiful. But then if you get under the hood, you pop the hood and you look under it and there's no motor in the hood. There's no engine inside this vehicle. You know what, that vehicle is worthless. It's, it's a yard ornament 
if there's no motor in it. It might look good, it might make people's heads turn, but it's not going anywhere. And in the, in the life of faith of a Christian, our faith can look good and we can do everything right and we can feel all the right things and make ourselves feel good and even make people notice our faith and what we're doing. But if there is no resurrection, there's no motor, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. In fact, Paul says, we are to be pitied if there is no resurrection. That is why Easter is such a big deal, church. That's why it matters more than anything else. The fact that he rose from the dead proves that he is who he said he was. He fulfilled all these prophecies by coming and living and dying and resurrecting. Every prophecy in the Old Testament, every prophecy ever given about the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Thank God that he rose. And I love Matthew's version of, of when, after Jesus died, and the women, a couple of the women are going to the tomb, they're gonna anoint his body with some spices, as was custom back then. And when they get to the tomb, it's a beautiful scene. Matthew paints it very well in Matthew 28. I wanna read this passage for you. Starting in verse two, it says, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Praise God. Thank the Lord. Yes, thank God. I, I love the last part of that verse. He said, he's not here. He has risen just like he said. It's the greatest and biggest I told you so in the history of the world. Jesus said, I told you I was gonna do it, and I did it. He came, died, and rose again for each and every one of us. But what does this mean for you? What does Resurrection Sunday mean for you? What does the gospel mean for you? Is it a day just to get dressed up and to come to church and, and feel like you did something good and have a, have a good time with family today, maybe have an Easter egg hunt? Those things are all fine and good, but it is so, so much more than that. It is infinitely more than that. It reminds me that he is the source of everything that matters in my life. There is nothing in my life that has any importance outside of or, or beside or above the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for my life. He laid down his life for me, so now I give my life back to him. It's the beauty of living for him. You see, the gospel is a paradox. There's many things, aspects of the gospel that are paradoxical, that, that is so int interesting for me, and it's intriguing and things we need to look at and understand in our life. If you're not familiar with a paradox, it basically means something that looks like it contradicts itself on the surface, but as you go deeper, you realize it doesn't. And the gospel is just that, is it, a, it is a paradox. It, it's free for all who will come. You can't buy it. You can't buy salvation and forgiveness of sins. It's free, but it costs me all I have because I give it my life once I receive the gospel. It shows me the darkness of my heart, but then it transforms me to be the light of the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He transforms us. It shows me how much I don't deserve to be in his presence because of his holiness and his, his goodness and his perfection. But then he draws me into this personal, intimate relationship with him. There's so many things about the gospel that seem like they are contradictory, but they're not. And one of the biggest ones is that the gospel is so beautiful, yet it's also incredibly offensive. It's beautiful and offensive at the same time. And we live in a society today where being somebody that's offensive 
is tantamount to being somebody that tortures puppies. <laughs> I mean, we just, we don't want to offend anybody today. You see it, people are living their life not to offend because people are so much more easily offended today as well. But we don't want to be that person of offense because you might get canceled. You might have all kinds of social issues in your life and nobody wants to offend anybody, which makes the gospel very challenging because the gospel at its core is offensive. And you'll see it even as in, in churches and in preaching where we're trying to make the gospel something that's palatable that people would want because it's just so great and try not to offend people by giving them the gospel, but it doesn't work because the gospel has to offend us to be effective in our life. Because listen, the gospel tells us who we are and shows us what we actually need. But the gospel is offensive. The gospel tells you you're not good enough. That's offensive. The gospel tells you that you're a sinner and that you're a sinner and that I'm a sinner. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says that my goodness, the best I could ever offer is disgusting to God. That's what the gospel says. And that's some offensive stuff if you're not at the place to be able to receive that, isn't it? It's completely offensive. You know, there are some things that are offensive that are just mean and mean-spirited and mean-hearted. You know, I had somebody tell me one time, you know what, I don't like how you dress when you preach. Now that's just mean. I wanted to come the next Sunday in a tuxedo, but I thought that might be passive-aggressive, so I didn't. <laughs> that's just mean. But there's some offenses that are really good, and the gospel is the greatest of all offenses, but it is offensive. And you might be here today and thinking that the truth of the gospel, when you hear it, it offends you and even upsets you a little bit because it doesn't make sense. It's offensive to so many things in our life. It's offensive to our pride. It's telling me I'm not good enough and I'm not enough. I can do this life on my own. I don't, I'm good enough. It offends our pride. It offends our independence. If you're an independent person, the gospel says you can't do it on your own. You're not good enough on your own. You need help. You need somebody to come in and save you. I don't need saving. That's offensive to me. And it's offensive to our common sense. You're telling me I need redemption from a God and that I'm supposed to be in relationship with this invisible God that I can't even see? That doesn't even make any sense, preacher. The gospel's offensive. And it's meant to offend us. It's meant to get us to a place where we understand who we are and who he is. You see, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, 6, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It's a, it's a prophetic book. Isaiah was one of the great prophets of Israel who, by the way, they killed him because he was speaking the words of God. And he gave many prophecies about the coming Messiah, but he also spoke to who we are. And he says in Isaiah 53, 6, he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It's beautiful because this is a prophet, he's speaking forward. This was hundreds of years before Jesus, but Isaiah's saying this is actually what's going to happen. Because we all have strayed away. We all have offended God. We all are like sheep who are wandering off and need someone to bring us back. Because of that, God laid the iniquity of every one of us on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's when we get to this place of allowing the gospel to not just offend us, but to show us who we really are, that's when we get to see who Jesus really is. Man, I'm so thankful for the heart of our Father that we have for us. 
And I'm thankful for Isaiah sharing his story, taking us on his journey with him. Can we thank Isaiah today for sharing? Thank you. Thank you for your transparency, Isaiah. And man, what an incredible testimony. I remember when, uh, when it happened this summer, this past summer, and man, we were so excited because it was just one of those moments where you just really get to see the fruit of ministry and seeing somebody transformed and changed by the love of God in their life. And uh, just so grateful for what God did in his life and what he's doing in other lives as well. And maybe you can even relate to Isaiah's story. You know, he said some things there. He said, you know, I really didn't, it's hard to believe in somebody you can't see. He only read his Bible because his mom made him. <laughs> some of us are adults and we don't have moms making us read our Bible, but we feel that sometimes, right? We can relate to this story because of the fact that we're all humans and we're all dealing with things in our life. And, you know, I'm reminded today when I see this story of just of God's faithfulness, that in spite of how, um, of his attitude and his approach to his faith, that God met him. And he showed him his faithfulness. And I'm reminded of the goodness and the faithfulness of God today. And I'm so thankful for it. You know, I can complain about God's faithfulness in my life just like anyone else. There's times I want it to look differently than it looks. I know he's always faithful, but there's times that in certain situations that I think to myself, man, if I were God, this is how I would have made my faithfulness look. You know, in my infinite wisdom that I don't have. And wanting God to do things a certain way. But man, when I, when I see what he did for Isaiah and what I've seen him do in so many lives in this church and in my family and, and in people I've known. I rejoice in knowing how good our God is and that he's always welcoming us back home. He's welcoming us into his family. He's welcoming us and giving us a seat at the table. And when I think of how flawed I am and how many times I still mess up, to think that he still loves me is nothing short of miraculous. It's an incredible characteristic of our heavenly father, of how much he loves us. And you know, the prodigal son was mentioned in this, that that was the teaching, the session that, that really moved Isaiah's heart. And we sang about the father's welcoming us. It's our homecoming. That's, that's about the prodigal son as well, that, that many of us have gone, we all have really gone away. We've all rebelled from God and, and wanted to do our own thing because again, the dependence on God was offensive to us. So we wanted to do our own thing. And it took the prodigal son getting to a place where he was wanting to eat the slop that he was giving the pigs before he finally realized there's a better way. He had to come to the end of himself. He had to get to a place where he saw himself for who he really was so he could see God for who he really is, that he really is the greatest thing in the universe. And that's the beauty of the offense of the gospel is that when we get to that place where we realize how badly we need a savior, the gospel goes from being offensive to being the greatest thing on earth. It goes from being something that makes you want to argue with Christians to being something that you wouldn't give up for all the money in the world. Though it cost you everything you have, you would go after it. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that is the offense and the paradox of the gospel in our life. And maybe today some of you need to see who you really are so that you can come back home. Maybe you're still running off like the prodigal son. Maybe you're still feeding the pigs, thinking you could figure out a way to make it on your own. And when anybody says something to you about giving your life and giving your heart to Jesus, it's an offense to you because you don't need that. And you haven't been to the end of yourself yet. But we need so desperately, we all need to get to that place where nothing will stop us from going home. Nothing will stop us from having that homecoming 
that, that God wants us to have in our life and that Jesus paid for so that you could have in your life. And you might think, well, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I'm afraid if I, you know, if I try to, if I say I'm going to live for Jesus and then I decide later I'm not going to, I don't want to be this hypocrite. He's like, the, people say, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. Some of you are here today and you don't come to church very often. And one of the reasons you may not come is because you think there's nothing but hypocrites in the church. Can I tell you, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. We don't embrace it and just say that's who we are and we don't care, but we're all hypocrites. If you're in the jury box, you want justice. If you're in the defendant's chair, you want mercy. That's just who we are, right? That, that even feels like our job in those situations. You can gossip to somebody about the fact that somebody else is gossiping about you. You see the irony in that? We are all hypocrites. Again, we don't embrace it, but we can't. I heard somebody say this a while back and I'll never forget it. A, a preacher said, not going to church because there's hypocrites there is like not going to the gym because there's out of shape people there. Could you imagine going into a gym and you walk in and you see somebody on the treadmill and you're like, that guy only lasted two minutes on the treadmill. And this guy over here was trying to bench press and all he was pushing up was the bar. This place is full of hypocrites. I'm never going back there. Those machines obviously aren't doing their job. If the machines were doing their job, these people would be ripped and shredded. I'm not going back to the gym. We would laugh at that person. The reason those people are there is because they want to sacrifice. They want to be better. They want to not just sit on the couch eating potato chips, but they actually want to take care of themselves and not have a heart attack when they're 40. And it's the same thing in the church. People in the church, of course there's hypocrites in the church. We're here because we want to be better, because we know we need Jesus. We're not in the church because we think we're better than everybody. I can tell you, I'm not here because I think I'm better than you. I'm here because I need more of the resurrected Jesus in my life. Praise God. So please don't let hypocrites keep you from being in community and growing in your faith because God works with all of us and we're all hypocrites when it really boils down to it. The gospel isn't for perfect people. It's for imperfect people going after a perfect God. That's what the gospel is. We're all imperfect and we all need Jesus. We all need more of him. You know, the gospel was a mystery for thousands of years. Nobody understood the gospel for thousands of years. Even some of the prophets prophesying about the Messiah coming didn't even really understand what they were talking about. And when Jesus was with his disciples, telling them what he was going to do and how he was going to die and rise again, and he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, they're looking at him going, I don't get it. And they were with him all the time because the gospel was hidden. The Bible tells us it was. Paul told us in Ephesians 3, look what he says in verse 8 of Ephesians 3. He says, although I am less then the least of all of God's people, the grace was, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, praise God, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Thank the Lord. So Paul's telling us here that the gospel was hidden. This, these unsearchable riches of Christ, the gospel was hidden until now. Paul had the administration of giving, giving us the understanding towards this mystery 
that is being made known now. And the, the bottom line of this is with the new, with the gospel and with Jesus having come and done what he did is that now we can approach him through faith with freedom and confidence. Changed everything. We can come to him with freedom and confidence. So what are these riches that Jesus had that he used so that we could approach him this way? How were these riches used? Well, let me give you a couple really quickly, quick ways that these riches were used by Jesus. First of all, it was used to pay the debt of sin. He paid the debt of sin. Now, if you've been in church a while, you've heard this terminology. You know this terminology. You know about him paying the debt of sin. Unfortunately, many of us don't really understand what that means. And I want to explain it to you today to make sure that there's no misunderstanding of what it means that Jesus paid our debt. The Bible shows us that our sin puts us in debt to God. That our account with God, if you'll indulge me to talk in terms of finances and, and accounts, our account with God is delinquent. Now in the natural world, if you want your accounts to be current, you have to pay the payments, right? If you have a mortgage, if you want your account to be current with the bank, you make your payment every month. That keeps your account current. If you don't pay for a couple months, your account becomes delinquent and you risk foreclosure on your house. If you, if you wanna keep your account with the government current, you pay your taxes or you flee to the Bahamas, one of the two. But you, you wanna, if, you, if you pay what you're supposed to pay, you keep that account current with the government. Your account with your, your heavenly father is delinquent because of your sin. Now the difference between this account and, and natural accounts is that you cannot make this account undelinquent, if that's a word, by money or paying for it. That's not what brings this account to not being delinquent and being uh, balanced out and in good standing. The only way for the account with God to be brought into good standing is by the payment for the death, which has to, or for sin, which has to be death. Something has to die for your sin to be paid for and your account to be current with God. In the Old Testament, when they had the temple, they would bring animals into the temple and they would kill these animals as a payment for sin. And this animal had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. It couldn't be some old, almost dead animal that you're gonna come to use. You had to get the best of the herd. Whether it was a goat, a cow, a, a bird, whatever it was, it had to be the best of the best. It had to be your prized possession had to come to make that sacrifice. And then that, your sin would be forgiven for a season. But to forgive our sin for permanent, it had to be a person that would do this. It had to be a spotless person with no blemish, that was perfect in every way. When God knows that there's no human that has been born that's perfect. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're born into sin, that it is in our nature to be sinful. So it doesn't matter who the person is, there's no way to be good enough. So this had to be God. God was the only one that could do it. So he did it himself. He came as the spotless, sinless, perfect lamb of God. And by his death, he paid the debt of our sin so that our account with God is current. That's exactly what he did. He made our account with God current. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. It says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's exactly what happened. The righteousness of God. Righteousness there means to be in right standing, for our account to be current, for us to not be delinquent. For that to happen, God had to place the sin of the world on somebody who was sinless. And the only person that could do that was God himself. So the riches of Christ were used to pay your debt and my debt. 
as we trust in him and as we live for him. It's a beautiful thing. But it was just, he didn't just do that. He didn't just pay our debt so that we could just live uh, uh, carelessly and do whatever we want. He paid our debt so that we could be back in relationship with God. You see, it was his intent for us all the while. When he created humans, it was always his intent for us to be in relationship with him. But our sin separates us from that relationship with him. The only way to get that relationship back was for the debt to be paid, which Jesus did. But he did it so that we could be back in relationship with God. This is another part of the offense of the gospel. You want me to be in relationship with an invisible God that I can't see and I can't hear his voice and I can't really even understand a lot of the mysteries of who he is? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. That's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus paid for. And if you've been in relationship with God, you understand it. It's not, you don't hear him with your natural ears, you hear him with your heart. You don't see him with your natural eyes, you see him with your faith. And he works in your life and he transforms you and he makes you new and he sanctifies you and makes you more like him every day. That's the beauty of who he is. He did it to bring us back into relationship with him so that we could live for him. We are created for it. And Romans tells us, Paul said it in his book, in his letter to the church in Rome, tells us that the sinful mind is hostile towards God, that we cannot submit to God because of sin and we won't do it. That's another part of the offense. We can't submit to God if we're allowing the sinful mind to control us. It's offensive. Why would I submit to a God I can't see? It's offensive to you and me to have to do that if we're living in a natural sinful mind. And the, the best representation that shows us this separation is the temple. When you, if you study the temple of the Old Testament, when, when the Jews built the temple, it actually housed the presence of God. He literally dwelled in the Holy of Holies, which was a separate room that no one was allowed to go into except the priest once a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And there was a big curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Jews could hang out in the other part of the temple and out in the court and they could do their thing, but they could not go into that Holy of Holies because that was the presence of God. That represented relationship with God. And this curtain separated them from that place. This curtain represented sin. The sin in the hearts of man kept the people from being able to be in the presence of God, which makes what Jesus did all the more beautiful when you read it and you come all the way forward to the gospels in Matthew 27 and Jesus is hanging on the cross and look what it says in verse 50. It says, and Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up his spirit and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Praise God. The earth shook and the rocks split. So when Jesus died, that separation between us and God that kept us from being in a relationship with him was completely eliminated. The curtain tore in two. It didn't just get a little frailed or get a little torn. It was completely destroyed because now we have access into the Holy of Holies. We have access into the presence of God to be able to live for him and live with him to the glory of God. Thank the Lord. Praise God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 sums it all up. It says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He died for us to forgive us of our sins so that we won't live for ourselves anymore, but we'll live for him. Would you stand with me, please? I wanna pray for you today. I'm gonna to ask you to, to just hang with me for a minute because this is a very important part of the service. I wanna ask you a couple questions today. First of all, have you allowed him to pay your debt? Because you see, he, he did the work on the cross. In fact, when he died, he said, it is finished. But that doesn't mean everybody's debt is paid. 
to actually have your debt paid, you actually have to give your life to him. You have to trust him. You have to live for him and not for yourself. He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. Have you allowed him to pay for your debt? The, the money is there for the debt. You can be completely debt free. It's there. You have to come get it. But to come get it, you got to receive him and live for him. So you, you let him pay your debt and then you live with him. The prodigal son left, but when he came back, he lived in the house. That is the right standing with God. That is, where, that is how your account is current with God, is that you live with him and for him. I know there's probably some of you under the sound of my voice in this room or watching online that at one time you can remember a time where you gave your life to the Lord, but you've been very, very haphazard ever since then. You've been living just kind of doing your thing and you're, you're here today because it's Easter and you got enough church in you to know that it's a good thing to come to church on Easter. But can I tell you something? Being here at Easter doesn't impress God. It impresses us, we're glad you're here, but it doesn't impress God. He wants your life. He doesn't want an hour on a Sunday morning in April. He wants your life, church. The Father is welcoming you. This is your homecoming. Homecoming is not coming to church. Let me say it again. Homecoming is not coming to church, people. Homecoming is coming back to Jesus. It's saying, my life's not my own. Let me tell you something, the beauty of our Lord and Savior is that as many times as we reject him, as many times as we will come back, he will receive us. That is how incredible he is. That is how, how, how he has oceans of grace for us if we will just come back. He says, just come back. Just come back. The prodigal son, we don't see it in the story, but he could have left again. And if he came back, the father would have met him again because that's the heart of our father. He wants your life. He wants your, commit, your commitment to him. He wants you to submit your life to him. He wants you to look past the offense to your common sense and to your independence and to your pride and to say, yes, Lord, I need you. I cannot do it without you. And when you do that, he meets you in that place. And he comes into your life and he starts to transform you and to make you more like him. And it's a beautiful thing. Don't let the lies of the world, don't let the lies of society or the lies of your family or anybody else in your life tell you anything other than that, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is everything to you. And it is everything to me. There is nothing valuable in this life outside of that. In fact, Paul said, if, it's, if even Jesus is just for this life, you should feel sorry for us because it's so much more than that. So I wanna pray for you today. And when I pray, I just want you to receive this today. And if you, if you wanna make a commitment to the Lord today, you can do it on your own, but you can also go get prayer. We're gonna have prayer leaders back here in the atrium. We're not gonna take you off into a room and, and do anything weird to you. We just wanna pray for you if you would like that. We're gonna be available. But don't leave this place today without making sure that your account with God is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your word because it's your word that transforms us. It's your word that makes us see our own heart. And God, I pray that your spirit would do the work in our hearts right now in this moment. Do your work in our hearts. God, the music, the preaching, all of it is meaningless without your spirit producing fruit in our lives. Let your word produce in our hearts. God, where we have been offended because of the gospel, Lord, we lay that down today. God, bring us to that place where we're not 
yelling at you, telling you to give us our blessings so we can go live our life. But we're crawling back to you saying, God, just let me be a servant in your house. Anything to just be with you. Bring us to that place, Lord. Only you can get us there. Do it, Lord. Do your work today, Lord. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for paying the debt and making a way that we could know you. Thank you that that temple curtain is destroyed and it is gone forever. And Lord, we have access. We can come with freedom and confidence into your presence because of what you did for us. We thank you and we praise you for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. amen.